Welcome to the Behavior Source Podcast. I am your host, Julie, and we have with us once again, the wonderful Julie number two, who I had the very amazing pleasure of working with um, several years ago. We worked together for about four years, Julie. Was it four years? Julie was my boss. She actually did a little bit of my BCBA supervision hours, and she was wonderful, and she's just a great supervisor. So I'm going to let her kind of introduce herself and talk about her classroom experience, and then I'll introduce myself, and then we're going to get into behavior in the classroom. So go ahead, Julie. All right. Well, I'm Julie. I taught in a public school setting for five and a half years, and I did all of my experience with elementary education. Um, I had one classroom that was K to five, and then I had a classroom that was K to two, and then I also had a classroom that was three to five. So at all configurations of special education, um, I did focus primarily on autism. So I did not have a lot of experience outside of student teaching with other disabilities, but uh, a lot of autism experience. And then I have spent the past seven and a half years working with toddlers with autism. So I'm still in a semi-educational setting. I would say it's far more educational than clinical, um, but it is different than a public school classroom for sure, because we're not regulated the way that a public school is as far as um, curriculum and progress and testing and things of that nature. So that's kind of me in a tiny nutshell. I forget sometimes that you did a K to five classroom, Julie, like, yeah, that sounds exhausting. How did you organize that many curriculums at one time? That sounds horrible. It was, it was interesting for sure. And that particular, there was one year I had a fifth grader and kindergartners and trying to manage that um, was interesting. So I kind of wore my fifth grade teacher hat for a minute and then my kindergarten teacher hat and then my fifth grade teacher hat. And then in my classroom, I did a lot more of grouping around their abilities. And so even if a child was older or younger and they had an ability that better aligned with a different student, I kind of paired them more with where they were rather than their age or their grade specifically. And that seemed to work well for me, but it was definitely challenging for sure. All right. Well, I'm the other Julie. Um, You can imagine how exciting it was to have two Julies working together for so many years. They would just be like, which Julie are you talking about? It's the Julies, you know. So I'm the regular Julie that you hear from every month here. Um, I started out in general education and I was definitely, that was my goal. I was going to be a history teacher at the high school level. I was going to teach gifted and talented. There was no other place for me. Um, And then that did not work out. Um, You can go back to previous podcasts if you would like to hear how that did not work out for me. But I ended up teaching overseas for a little bit where I ended up having my very first student with autism that I got to work with one-on-one and I just loved it so much. So when I moved back to the States, I ended up working in a residential facility, um, specifically on the unit for students on the autism spectrum. And I got to do like some really good applied behavior analysis there. And that's where I was first exposed to what is a BCBA? What do they do? And So then I was like, I want to be a BCBA too. And so when I moved again, I ended up getting my master's in special education with an emphasis in applied behavior analysis. Um, And I became a BCBA. And so I've been working in a school setting for about almost five years now, I think. And I love it. I love taking all that information and all that experience I have in a general education setting and kind of 
thinking, what did I miss? What did I miss out on? What did I want when I was teaching? And I can kind of try to help provide that for my teachers and my staff as I kind of go in and consult in classrooms because I know from personal experience, and Julie, I'm sure you're the same way, that when you're a teacher, your pre-service education does not necessarily encompass behavior management or behavior intervention in any way. Did you get any behavior management classes? So I did. I actually got several of them, but I was an education major and I went to school for education and special education specifically. So I got a lot of it because that was my path from the beginning. See, and it's like, for those of us who are in general education, I hope, I don't know, this is throughout the whole country, but it's like you have your, especially in secondary, you have your major and that's your top, that's your subject you're going to teach. And then you minor in education And then like in my educational classes, you know, they were great. They were good quality. We had a lot of focus on multiculturalism, which was really helpful. That was the big buzz at the time, which I still take a lot of that stuff with me today. But I didn't know what autism was until I Googled it when I started student teaching. And I was like, what's happening here? Like, what what do you mean? What's an IEP? Like, no one taught me what an IEP was. No one walked through it with me. No one told me what autism was. And so when I go into the classroom and I'm you know, I'm doing my student teaching. I just was so like my eyeballs got ginormous. I was just blown away by everything that goes into educating an inclusive classroom, just a regular general education classroom, because you have so many different needs, not just academically, but behaviorally that no one prepares you for at all. And so that's my hope, not just with our podcast and, you know, with our content and our Instagram, but just like in our jobs. I know, Julie, you're the same ways that we want to We want to help train people to implement effective interventions in the classroom so that our kids can be successful. Education this year has certainly been different. Even, Julie, I think your site has been a little different. So thankfully, this school year, like starting in August 2020, it's been far more like normal. Um, But last year, especially, you know, March to May in through the summer, it was just incredibly different (laughs) than what we usually do. Um, And trying to figure out how to provide ABA services while not being in the physical same space was incredibly difficult and interesting because while I'm trying to provide service, I'm really at that point, I'm a coach because I'm having to coach a parent how to do the thing I would have done. And that's just, it's very interesting. And I'm not just doing that in a void. I'm doing that in their home. And a lot of my clients have siblings and other family members who are involved for better or worse um, that you have to consider when you're trying to walk a parent through how to do a reinforcement and when to do a reinforcement and what you should reinforce with things that in my brain, I just do it so quickly. Having to actually talk all of that out to another person is, that was a challenge. And the kids also were like, why are you on my computer? (laughs) Why am I not watching a a movie? You know, all of those kind of fun things. But this has been difficult for sure. Well, and it's like a lot of the things that we're teaching are those social emotional skills. And so it's stuff that, that comes up in the classroom, you know, or in that that preschool environment where they're like interacting with peers and things like that. And so then it's like, you don't have as many opportunities for that in the home. I feel like, especially when they're on zoom or you're on um, like a virtual format, you're kind of just like, you're seeing the one little rectangle basically 
mm-hmm. of their life and you can only provide feedback on this one little rectangle. So that was really difficult. I know like when our district last year when we went, we shut down and we went completely virtual and it wasn't ideal because no one was prepared for for virtual last year. So how we handled things, you know, March to May versus how we handled things in August were completely different. But that was really a struggle is that you have these you have these families and you have these kids and we're now we're experiencing not only, you know, the uncertainty of a pandemic, but they're also like getting trauma. And there's the uncertainty of like, you know, there were a lot of people who lost their jobs and we had a lot of families who were, you know, had unstable food sources at that point. And so there's a lot of factors that kind of feed into behavior, I think, that people forget about sometimes. And we just get so laser focused on the moment and the behavior that's happening in front front of us and we forget about that bigger picture of, well, this kid maybe didn't eat today and there's a global pandemic happening, you know? And so that's been really hard with this year, trying to put everything in context for people. But Definitely. I think there's some things we as adults don't take into consideration that may have completely rocked some children's worlds. And so I had a student who moved relatively close to the beginning of all of the shutdown. And so this poor little child moved to a new home and then magically couldn't go to school, couldn't see family members, couldn't go to their favorite places. And I think there was a little bit for a while, some attachment of like that move caused all of those things. Mm -hmm. And in a tiny human, like that makes sense. Like that was the thing that changed and then nothing was the same after. Um, that has since been resolved and I think they really love their home now, but there was definitely some hard feelings for a while. And I think that has happened to a lot of kids and we don't know what they have assigned all of this change to, and it might make them react differently and behave differently because in their minds that move may have caused it, or this thing I did or didn't do may have caused it because they can't fully understand our process. I mean, we as adults are having a hard time understanding and processing all of this. And there are tiny humans who are not even remotely capable. Um, but thankfully they're super resilient and, you know, bounce back way faster than I think we do as adults, which is great. I've been really impressed with some of our kiddos this year, like just kind of being out and about in classrooms. Like I do, I agree. I feel like the kids are being more flexible than even mm-hmm. adults are, you know, just in my observations, I don't have data to back this up, but it's just in here like, man, I feel so rigid and I feel so um, disoriented and just really dysregulated. And I'm having to really utilize my coping skills as an adult, but our kids are really, you know, they're more flexible than us sometimes. And I feel like a lot of them are doing really well. Some of them still need some supports. And like, we're going to talk about, you know, behavior is going to continue to be a major topic in education, no matter, you know, 20 years down the road, behavior is going to be there. Um, And I know like I hear it a lot. It's like I've been doing this for 20 years, you know, and kids are different nowadays. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that kids are different. I just think circumstances are different. Julie, do you think kids are different? I, I don't. I think I would agree that circumstances are different and the challenges that feed into what behaviors we see or don't see. I think those challenges are different Like I cannot imagine growing up with all the social media. Yes. For example, like that was not a part of my childhood. We had an analog Uh, childhood. Yes. Yes. We were not. Yes. (laughs) 
Um, I'm really thankful I did, you know, I, I am thankful that was not part of my life. Um, but I don't think I behaved differently than a child would today. There's just extra circumstances around some of the things. Agreed. All right. So Julie, let's get into our discussion here. What are some of the biggest challenges to addressing behavior in the classroom that you have noticed, that you have seen, that you feel are really important to talk about? So in my experience, I feel like one of the biggest challenges is who is requesting my support. Yes. So if if a teacher is requesting my support, they already have buy-in. They already know that I'm going to tell them something that might be helpful, um, that they have a person they can talk to. Just there's that buy-in already because they've approached me. If I have been asked to intervene on the behalf of someone else, I have found that to be a big barrier because the teacher may not see the problem the way that like administrators do. Um, And if I can see where that's almost, I don't even know the right word there, but I can see that that is incredibly frustrating because you are doing the best you can and somebody else thinks you aren't doing well. And then they call somebody like us. What do you mean? Um, I don't need help. I'm doing, I'm doing it all, you know? Right. And, and so I think that is a huge barrier um, it's just like, where, where is that request coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, then kind of the next layer is why, you know, like, why are you getting that request to help intervene with that behavior? And um, so that is definitely, I would say one of the first things is recognizing who's asking for help um, and then why they're asking for help. And then ultimately, like, there's a behavior that's happening that needs to be addressed in some way. And I think it makes a huge difference what setting that behavior occurs in. Um, And the function is huge. And that's true of all behavior. Why are you doing what you're doing? Something I do with my current setting and the current people I work with is trying to think about, okay, so they're doing X, which is not inherently bad. It's just not necessarily what we want or socially appropriate. So how can we give them that same outcome in a more appropriate way? You know, if, if they are flipping water out of a dog bowl, playing in water is not inherently bad. Flipping it out of the dog bowl is not an, a desirable thing. So how can we yeah. give them time and place to do that water play that we're okay with as Mm -hmm. the adults. Um, That's very much a home situation, but in a school situation, taking too long in the bathroom because they're playing in the sink instead of washing their hands. Again, playing in the water is not a bad thing. So how can we take that and shape it to what we as the adults in the situation deem appropriate or responsible or less challenging um, because the child obviously needs to do that needs is kind of a strong word, but wants <laughs> to do that. And how can we help them accomplish their goal in a way that is not challenging to us? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, and I put on my notes too, like buy-in, like you're talking about buy-in and who requests you. And I think that's one of the big challenges that I've seen, at least like going into the classroom is that 
A lot of times I'm getting called in by an administrator. I mean, like a lot of times I'm getting called in by the teacher too. But you'll have like one person who's kind of bought in, right? One person's on board. Like they want you there. They want to hear it. But then it's it's hard because behavior change takes some effort. And it's mm-hmm. not to say like our people working in schools don't want to put the effort in because they're amazing. Like and they they do. They want to put the effort in. But if you've been dealing with this behavior for weeks, months, all school year, um, and someone comes in and is like, okay, well, here's a five-step plan for how we're going to intervene with this behavior. Go, you know. Um, I can see absolutely how hard that is as a teacher to be like, what do you mean? I'm already teaching in the middle of a pandemic. I'm already mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, virtual instruction, in-person instruction. I'm having to deal with this behavior that's happening in front of me as well. And you're telling me I need to do these other things to intervene with this behavior. Can you just get the kid out of my room? Just get him out, you know. Um, and so for me, like that's been a big struggle is getting that buy-in, not just from the one person, like the teacher, but from the entire team is to get the team on board. Because even if one person, Julie, I'm sure you've seen, if one person's not doing it, that can kind of derail some mm-hmm. things. And so you can have this great behavior plan, but the one pair is not doing it. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> yes. I think I also run into long enough, like one really awesome day is Mm -hmm. not going to fix or change the behavior necessarily. Um, It's not quick. It's not a one day situation. It's like at least two weeks is kind of my rule of thumb. Like let's give it two weeks unless we are have some safety concerns and then that may be different. But I think getting the buy-in, like you said, for long enough to actually see change can be really difficult because you do have rough days. And if you have been given a five-step plan when you've already been working on it for six months, it's hard to give it two more weeks, um, especially if you have anything like an extinction burst going on. Yeah, So it's it's getting worse, but the getting worse means it's working. Like that's hard. And that's hard as a person who does this all the time. And I can't imagine how hard that is going through it while also managing you know, what, 18, 20 other children, um, that is difficult for sure. Yeah. I think that kind of leads me like that consistency piece was a big one for me and the fidelity piece, which is like, you know, doing the plan as it's written, you know, doing the plan as it's intended. That for Mm -hmm. me is hard because I see one of the big challenges I see is there's some drift where it's like, you know, I'm not there all the time, you know, and I know, Julie, you're more present in your classrooms than I am in mine because I feel like I have a way more um, at this point. Um, But like, I'll go in, you know, I'll do a training and I kind of have to set them free and I can't Mm -hmm. sit there with them for a week or, or even a day. A lot of times like I've got a couple hours I can sit with you and train you on how to do this if I'm lucky. And then I check back in, you know, a week or two later, how's it going? You know, do you need any help? And what I'll see sometimes is that drift where they're like, okay, well, that didn't really work. So we kind of ended up doing this and, you know, so-and-so is doing it this way and they're using stars and so-and-so is over here using a first then and then so-and-so is over here with a checklist. And I'm like, those are all great strategies, but we need to pick one, you know? And so it's just that we need to make sure we're doing it with consistency and fidelity and I kind of think that kind of piggybacks onto another thing, which is staffing, which mm-hmm. is just and at a school setting, staffing is generally, in my experience, an issue because when you're looking at behavior, it does require additional work. 
Um, it requires additional effort. And sometimes that effort needs to happen immediately. You know, you have to provide mm-hmm. immediate reinforcement for appropriate behavior because little Susie raised her hand and she's only going to raise it for two seconds. And if you don't reinforce her immediately, then she's going to stop and she's going to go engage in some other challenging behavior to get your attention. But you're a teacher, like Julie, you were saying, like with 20 other kids, how are you supposed to, you know, provide appropriate attention in a timely manner? And so it's a lot of it is about staffing and and unfortunately, some of that is about having administrators who will work with you, who can be creative with you, to think outside the box on how we're going to staff this. How are we going to do this? Can we rotate some people around? Can we get somebody in there for the specific hour that's really a struggle so that you can provide really good reinforcement during this specific hour? You know, so for me, the biggest challenge, the thing I hear the most from teachers is, well, who's going to do that? Mm-hmm. Who's going to watch my class while I do that? You know, I'm happy to do it, but who's going to watch my class? And they're not learning while, they're, while I'm having you do this thing. And I'm like, I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but behavior takes a lot of effort. It does. It takes a lot of effort. And I, I would say I have had, in my experience, in all the classrooms, really, all the settings, is that that staffing has to also be done by the right person. Yeah. Because it doesn't work well when a different TA or assistant in the building is just informed that, oh, by the way, you're going to so-and-so's class to do this today. Um, I, knowing the setting I was in, um, we were viewed, my classroom was viewed in a very particular way and other teaching assistants did not want to come be a part of my classroom because it was hard. We had hard kids. We had um, they, they weren't dangerous, but we had children with some aggression and they were not on board for that. Like that was not the job that they had. It was this not what their I signed job. up for. This is what exactly. I, I hear that a lot. This isn't what I signed up for. And so that, I mean, it makes the difference. We, I had this discussion at work today, the whole warm body situation. Like sometimes you just need a warm body and it doesn't really matter if they're trained well, if they're bought in well, you just need an adult with eyeballs <laughs> who can, you know, do some crowd control. Um, but sometimes that is not good enough. You can't, you can't just have a warm body. You have to have somebody who is also semi-trained and at minimum bought into why they're doing what they're doing and why it's important. Even if it is just giving little Susie a high five because she sat quietly, you know, the person providing that high five has to see the value and why you're doing it because a warm body can do that. But Susie's going to be able to tell that it's not genuine. Absolutely. All right. So let's like, now we're going to get away from the negativity a little bit and the challenges. (laughs) Um, I promise that we're not just here to kind of like complain about, you know, teachers and staff. We love everybody. Um, I think our teachers and staff are doing an amazing job this year. Um, so Julie, what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you about managing behavior in a classroom setting? Oh, goodness. I, I feel like I've learned so much over the years that it is hard to know, like what piece came from whom (laughs) and where, you know, um, I know in my master's program, one of the professors just she, her class was classroom management. And I feel like I learned a ton of things from that class for sure. And one thing in particular, I wouldn't say it's the best, but I would say it's definitely like a golden 
like keep it in mind. Um, sometimes in a special education classroom, the way you grade things is different, especially if you're in like a functional skills class where you're not necessarily doing math the way everyone else is doing math, or you're not doing reading the way everyone else is doing reading. And you have to come up with a way to account for why you gave that child, I don't know, a plus rather than a minus or whatever. And so the ratio she talked about, and I've carried this with me, is their effort over your effort. And so you want them to have, if I remember it right, it was like an A over an A, meaning they gave all the effort and you gave minimal to no effort. And what we sometimes get caught in is that the child gave like C effort, which is next to none. And we as the adults gave a lot of effort, you know, and so kind of, or A over C. So they gave all the effort, we gave minimal versus they gave minimal and we did it all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think just being aware, how much effort am I expending as the adult to get you to do your task? Um, Because if it's too much, I'm doing it wrong. Like something is out of whack if I'm giving all the effort and you're giving none of the effort. So while I did not use that grading system, I kept that ratio in mind a lot as I worked with kids. So that was definitely great. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's just been so much and so many things that work so well in a setting or with a child that does not necessarily translate to all of my, or all of my children. So I, um, I definitely learned and saw very, very clearly, um, those hierarchy of needs. You know, I had kids once they were fed and clean Mm -hmm. and, you know, and felt loved and secure, they blossomed and we saw a lot, but the day that they walked in and they did not have those, you know, just basic needs met, we didn't get very far. And, um, is it like Maslow before bloom? Is that what it's, what it is? Yes. Like something of that nature. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, when I met their basic needs, we had a different child than when I didn't, when I was like, no, I have to teach you how to read. And I did have to teach them how to read, but I also had to get them fed and clean and safe. And then we could read. When we get hangry, I know Julie, you're the same way as me. Oh yeah. This one is that if I'm, if I'm hungry, I'm so cranky. I'm so like, Mm -hmm. not, I'm not on my A game. I'm not going to be like able to concentrate and write a really effective report. If I'm sitting here like, trying to write an FBA while I'm starving, my verb, like the kind of things I use are going to be more like cranky words and I'm going to make a lot more typos. I'm not going to be able to concentrate. And then I just try to think about that with our kids. Like these are little Mm -hmm. children with big emotions sometimes. Even our teenagers, you know, they've got big emotions in these, you know, teenager bodies with all these hormones. They need food and they need sleep Mm -hmm. and they're not getting it necessarily, uh, which is a struggle. And so providing that is one of the best things you can do as a teacher or, or any kind of staff member is just like, give them a snack. Mm-hmm. You're not cheating if you give them a snack. Right. Well, I think like for me, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, um, and I got, I got a really good piece of advice when I was student teaching and I got a really bad one, which I will share in a moment. But the best piece of advice I ever got was to build relationships. Um, because, and then I think back to me as a kind of, 
I won't say I was like a really bad teenager because I really wasn't that bad, but I was a bit of a wayward youth. Um, if you can imagine little goth Julie, um, and I had, you know, an attitude problem, but I think about the teachers that I loved, the teachers, I remember their name and I don't remember a lot of my teacher's names. Um, but in high school, there's some that I remember, and I'm like, I remember, you know, Miss So-and-so, I remember Miss So-and-so, and I remember them because they built that relationship with me, and I worked for them, and there was a clear distinction between the teachers I liked and the teachers I didn't like, and the quality of work I provided um, for those teachers, and so the best advice I got when I started student teaching was, you know, you want to build those relationships, and you want to work on that the very first day, and then I got a really bad piece of advice. <laughs> which was start the year out mean because you can always get nicer, but you can't get more strict as the year goes on. They were like, you need to start the year off really mean and strict and stern because you can get nicer as the year goes, but you cannot start out nice and then get meaner because they won't respect you. And I'm just sitting here like, I don't know if that's really, and it was a really, it was a veteran teacher who told me, she was a special education teacher who told me that. And I was like, I have so much respect for you, but I don't agree as a former teenager myself um, and just being in the classroom like if you start out mean if you burn a bridge and then you try to build it back up it's so much harder and I think for me it's like as an adult even when I'm dealing with adults if you've burned the bridge with me as an adult I'm like oh no 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 you could be as nice as you want with me for years after I remember I remember how you were in the beginning I've got my eye on you like I'm not I'm not fooled like there's always going to be this part of me that doesn't trust you and so like to say like you should start out the year mean and stern you know not to say you shouldn't start the year out with procedures and rules and be clear with your expectations and be fair but there's a difference between being like mean and um having clear expectations. And I think that's Mm -hmm. sometimes where we get mixed up. Um, So I would really say build those relationships. And it's what we talk about in ABA all the time, which is pairing. You know, you got to pair. You got to be the thing that's reinforcing to people because kids will work for teachers they like. It's true. We, so whenever a child starts in my setting now, And I did this when I was teaching as well. And I found a lot of value in it. I set up my day the way it was going to go all the time on the first day. Like we didn't have a special fun Lucy Goose first day because I worked with children with autism. Like they expect that to be the same the next day and the next day. And it's not. And so my structure was in place and they went to their work task. Now the work task was let's play with Play-Doh together and have a great time. Yes. But it's still a work task. Like it was work time. They had to go to their assigned spot. They, you know, they had to go through the procedures and the routine of a typical day. It was just the activities in there were less academic and far more fun and pairing because I very much agree. If you don't have that relationship and that pair, they're not going to do anything for you. And when they know that you care about them, they will give you so much more effort. And I saw that in my own classrooms, I would pair with a child and then another staff member would not. And it was like looking at a different kid when they sat down with me versus when they sat down with someone else. 
Um, I've also just genuinely like, I haven't been their favorite. Like they don't dislike me. We just didn't pair as well as they did with someone else. And like the effort I get out of a kid is completely different than when their favorite person sits down with. Um, so that pairing is huge. Like it's so, so important. Well, and sometimes it's a personality thing too. It's like, there's some people, there's adults that it's just like, you just don't mesh with. And there's going to be students you just don't mesh with necessarily, but you still have to try to build that relationship. You still have to try to get them to trust you as opposed Mm -hmm. to being like, well, well, that's just a lost cause. Like they don't like me. Like, well, you can have a grudging respect for someone. Like it's like we wouldn't get along (laughs) as friends necessarily, me and you teacher, but I respect you enough. You know, you've paired with me. We've built this relationship. I know you're going to be fair and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, So I think that's really important. Julie, what's the worst piece of advice you ever got? Do you have one? I don't have a worst piece of advice, but I have a very much a similar experience in my student teaching. I, well, actually it wasn't my student teaching. It was one of my practicums. When you're an education major, you spend a lot of time watching classrooms. And so I was in a classroom watching and this teacher was not warm and fuzzy. She was not kind I very much just fundamentally, I have a different approach to children than this person had, but I watched that teacher get observed by the principal. And the day that the principal came in, this person was warm, was fuzzy, was kind, was all about everything that the kids were doing. Ah. And then the next day when the principal was gone, we were back to our mean, grouchy, grumpy self. So from that... I, and I have said, and you probably heard me say this in the time we work together, we're going to live life the way we live life. And when somebody comes in, like they're going to see how we live life. And if something is wrong, I need to know if something is bad or not going the way that my administrators think it should be. I need to know, but we are not going to change how we are or what we do because an administrative level individual has walked into the classroom because that doesn't help anybody, us or the kids, especially. So that was actually a bad situation that actually lent itself to good advice (laughs) Um, of just like, I'm going to do what I do, whether you're watching me or not, because how am I as a teacher going to get better if I present a facade anytime somebody comes in who could offer me advice or help or critique? Well, and that makes me concerned too. Like when I go in a classroom, Sometimes, you know, I'll kind of peek around the door and like sneakily observe because kids know when they're being watched, right? So if mm-hmm. I'm there for a kid, you know, I'm going to like sneakily observe for a bit first. And if there's a, a real difference between when I'm sneaky observing versus when I'm actually in the classroom, like just with the staff, that concerns me because it says on a level to me that you that you know what you're doing is not necessarily right. Um, and it's not that you're just like, I'm going to do this I know that I'm doing this wrong and I'm going to do it perfectly when you're in the classroom. But it just means that, oh, someone's in here. I I know what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm going to kind of straighten up and make sure I'm doing it. So that says, you know what you're supposed to do. And as teachers, it's so easy for us to just drift and get into the groove of just like, oh my gosh, it's happening again. And we have to objectively kind of pull ourselves up and be like, hey, I got to do what I'm supposed to be doing. I can't let this kid suck me into it, into the drama. And that's why you need your good team for that to kind of help you stay 
I'm going to air quote, stay honest with it, you know, like, and with Julie and I, I know that there were a bunch of times where Julie had to come in and be like, we would kind of have to keep each other going where we had a consistent intervention because I would get frustrated. You know, I've gotten beat up all day and Julie had to come give me a break a couple times because I was getting a little red around the face and you could hear my Southern accent coming out. So I think that's really important um, to keep in mind when we're looking at behavior stuff. Okay. So Julie, what can teachers and staff do to improve their behavior intervention skills? What advice do you have for them? I, man, I feel like in some ways, some of that is very particular to what the intervention is. And so you can't broadly, you know, sharpen your skill set because you, you have to tailor it very much to the situation. Um, But I think one thing you can do to improve your behavior intervention skills is really, really, really acquaint yourself with reinforcement, what it means, how it works for yourself and for other people who don't need intervention because we all get reinforced or we don't do things. Um, Being very clear and learning the difference between negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement and that negative reinforcement just means you are taking something away that makes their behavior increase like that. When I first got into it, that, um, that was a thing that was a little hard for me to wrap my mind around mm-hmm. in my very early behavior classes. But I think just really understanding reinforcement, it's so, so powerful. And like now many, many years removed, I see all the bad things I did, not bad, the incorrect things that I did as a teacher. And I so badly wish I could go back and do the right behavioral thing at the time. Um, but I didn't know better then. Um, but I think if I had understood reinforcement more, I would have made better choices as a teacher at the time. Um, I think because I understand reinforcement better now, I make better choices in the interventions I recommend and how I do them and how I look at behavior. Um, I always kind of kept a punishment. They need a consequence. Like, yeah, yeah, they need a consequence. You know, there has to be a consequence to this. Um, and there does, and there should be, but it doesn't have to be negative. It doesn't have to be bad. It can be, okay, the consequence you are getting is my red face. <laughs> so how can I manage that? But I think just understanding reinforcement would greatly impact people's ability to do some behavior intervention better, just like a really, really strong grasp and understanding you do not pick what is reinforcing. No, I love that. Yeah, that's really important. Absolutely. And I think like just building on what you said, Julie, because I think that's absolutely like spot on there is that the best behavior intervention programs are reinforcement based. They focus on what the child is doing right as opposed mm-hmm. to what they're doing wrong. And so often, you know, when we go into situations like, well, what consequence? He needs a consequence and we need to suspend. And, you know, consequences and suspension have a place. They do. Um, I don't argue that. However, you know, there's like, what's that little meme where it's like behavior goes where reinforcement flows, you know? So <laughs> you have to look for those little moments. And even and they are small sometimes. Um, and reinforce those however you can. We've had kids with, 
interesting reinforcer preferences, you know, Mm -hmm. and like you said, like we don't get to pick, you know, and so for me, I want a good Justin's peanut butter cup, but for little Billy, you know, it might just be he wants, what is it? He wants to play with that little squishy ball that like squirts, squirts Mm. out the weird little balls and it would like shoot across the classroom and he wants to go pick it up and bring it back. It was like, it was the weirdest little toy ever, but he loved it. I, I, I think my, my, I don't know if it's my favorite, but a super interesting one I have encountered is blowing bubbles, which is pretty common in my early childhood world, but wanting them blown in your face, like in your face or in your ear, like not just, you know, for you to pop, like, no, you got blown in in the face, in your face. And I'm like, I would hit someone if they blew bubbles in my face, but I don't get to pick. That is not my reinforcer. Um, thankfully, that individual can't pick my reinforcement because we would not agree. Nope. Um, and so I, I think that is powerful to recognize just because you think it should be or will be reinforcing doesn't mean that that is true. Yes. I mean, my daughter works for spraying people like a skunk. She thinks she's a skunk, like she wants to be a skunk. And so she does all her stuff at the end of the night and I let her pretend to be a skunk and she goes around spraying all of us and we play along like, oh no, skunk, don't spray me. And she thinks mm-hmm. it's the greatest thing in the whole world. Julie knows because her kid likes to be other animals too. But it's like, yep. she thinks that's the most amazing thing. And that's how I get through our nightly routine. It's like, okay, we're going to mm-hmm. brush our teeth. We're going to put on our pull up. We're going to put on our jammies. And after that, we can pre- pretend to be skunks and you can you know, run around spraying your dad and I with your skunk spray. And for me, like, I, whatevs, she's super cute when she does it. So I guess it's a little reinforcing to me. But for her, like, that's how we get through all of our nightly procedures. But yeah, I love that. All right. So what are the things that every teacher should know about behavior? Or what's your biggest piece of advice for teachers working in the field about behavior? I'm sure that teachers have heard this a million times. Or I know in the behavior community, we hear this all the time. Behavior is communication. Yes. They are telling you something. They're telling, they might be telling you this is too hard, but the same behavior could also be telling you this is too easy. Like they're telling you something. And so they, a thing I saw recently, and again, this is another floats around everywhere is that they're not have they're not giving you a hard time they're having a hard time yes. just that idea they're communicating something to you and you've got to figure out what that is and then you intervene once you figure out what are you telling me what is actually happening right now um i think about my personal child like when we're having a big old meltdown and it's like all right so i think you're telling me you're tired your words aren't saying that and like, that is not, and if I say that out loud to her, she will adamantly deny that she's tired, <laughs> but like this not in tears coming out over something tiny tells me that you're tired. And like that, while that's a very parent specific um, example, that same thing applies in school. Like they're doing something and what they're doing may not communicate to you clearly what they actually need but they are telling you, they're communicating with you. Yes, yes. I think my biggest thing, I think I have probably two. And so my first one would be um, 
that objectivity to look at, like you're saying, Julie, like behavior is not personal. It feels personal because sometimes that behavior is very, can be very significant. And, very, you know, if especially if you're dealing with things like aggression um, or mm-hmm. verbal aggression or verbal threats or things like that, it can feel so personal. Um, but 90%, 99% of the time, it's really not about you. It's about them. And being able to look at behavior objectively, I think, is the first step in really effectively intervening. Because then you can say, take a deep breath. This is not about me. This is about them. Behavior is communication. Like Julie was saying, how am I going to effectively intervene with this behavior? So that's number one, like my advice to teachers. I think it is true about recognizing it's not about you, but you might be playing a role in it. Yeah. Like... You know, like you it's not a, a factor, but you might be a factor. Like if I, I have learned over the years, I have very specific triggers that like, if this thing happened, I don't know if you witnessed any of my triggers when we worked together. I just know you're but, not, you should not get spat in the face. Like no yes, one should spit at Julie spitting. and vomit. Vomit's a cool. big thing. Vomit's a trigger more, more just like my gag reflex trigger. Um, but spitting will send me from zero to like 106 so quickly. And I recognize if a child spits on me, I have to get up and leave because anything I do after that will not be what it should be in response to the behavior. Um, so you can play a role in that because if a child liked that, I turn like be red and run out of the room, they might like want to spit on me more. So like, yes, you have to be, no, no, it's not about you, but you might have a role. Yes, absolutely. I use you as an example sometimes, Julie. I mean, I don't say your name when I'm doing yes. like trainings for staff and I'm like, no, your own <laughs> precipitating factors. And it's like, for example, I had a boss and it was about spitting. Like no one, like if someone was spitting at her, like we had to take over, like we knew. I don't yeah. really think it happened very often, but. <clears throat> I, I don't know that it did. I know that if it ever did, I would react in such a way that I need to leave. And for whatever reason, like something about my face, like if you scratch or bite or hit anywhere like below my neck, it's going to get me hot, but I can handle it. I can keep a straight face. But I feel like when you get in someone's face, it's personal. I'm like, no, you were trying to get me. Mm -hmm. And I very much have to manage my own. Like that is a trigger for me if you're going after my face. Um, so that's definitely one. Yes. I call it ninja skills. That makes my ninja skills get up. <laughs> well, the one thing I love about something I love about the masks is that it really does hide my mouth <laughs> a mm-hmm. lot, you know? So like if my daughter's being, you know, in if she's just being a nut, you know, out in target, I put my mask on and it hides my smile. Cause if she sees me smiling, while she's throwing a fit, she's like, stop laughing at me. And I'm like, but you're so cute (laughs) while you throw a fit. So I I do enjoy that. I am thankful. I am, I am thankful for the mask and just how much it helps hide my actual reaction that I used to have to manage myself. (laughs) And now the mask manages it for me. And so that's kind of nice. That laugh or that smile that, you know, would just encourage the behavior. Um, it's really Nice that nobody can see that. <laughs> I have my mask. I like it. Well, and it's just, it's so much like you're saying, our behavior influences their behavior so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times I'll come in and just as an objective person, I'm like, 
oh, like I can see that we're triggering student behavior. Our expectations are too high or there's something going on where we're triggering that challenging behavior, but we can't see it because we're in the moment, you know, and mm-hmm. I know it happened to me like when I was boots on the ground, like working in the field, like I know this happened to me. Um, but when you're in the thick of it, it's so hard to take yourself out of it and look at it that way. And so I think it's just important to remember, you know, you don't want to be that precipitating factor. You don't want to be that antecedent to the challenging mm-hmm. behavior because then you're losing that relationship. You want to, you want to be the bringer of good things, the reinforcer. Like here's all yes. the Play-Doh. Yes. You can have magic sand. Do you want iPad time? Here you go. There you are, you know? Um, so I think that's really important when we're looking at behavior is just make it all about the good stuff. And then when you're focusing on the good stuff, it makes you feel better. Like as a, as an, as a teacher, as a staff member, like I can just tell you, like when we focus on the negative and we're like, oh, he hit me 14 times today. And like, we should take data on aggression and I'm like tallying it up. But then I look at, okay, but you know, he followed my instructions 82 times today. Hooray! You know, that makes me feel better as a staff member is that data collection is so important. That's my mm-hmm. other thing that I think all teachers should know about behavior is that you need to collect data because data is like the most amazing tool in your toolbox besides reinforcement to help you know if your intervention is effective. And so I just think that's really important because data is reinforcing to me and I can be like, look at my data. Look how much better he's doing. Hooray. So, well, this is a good chat, Julie. Yes. Hopefully this was helpful. You know, I hope this, this helps some of you. This is just our little toe dip in the water of classroom behavior interventions. And I'm sure we'll have many more episodes to come on more specific ways to intervene with behavior in the classroom. But for now, this is our little our our fun little behavioral tips and tricks for you guys and and interesting things we've heard along the way like we've heard some fun things mm-hmm. thanks for listening to the behavior source podcast you guys can follow us on instagram at the behavior source or on twitter at behavior source we love hearing from you and hope to see you next time thanks <laughs>